Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Transformations, Chapter 9 of Dr. Franz Hartmann's Magic White and Black. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12. The universe is a manifestation of thought, and thought is an action of mind. The mind whose thought can bring a universe into existence must be a universal mind, embracing in its totality all the individual minds that ever existed, and containing the germs of everything that will ever come into existence. Mind is a motion of will. Without the will acting either consciously or instinctively, mechanically, within the mind, there would be no production of thought, nor could the will produce any orderly thought on the mind if there were no wisdom, and it will therefore be safer to say, the universe is a product of thought, will, and wisdom. Nor could either of these three ever produce anything if they were seeking to act independently of each other. They must necessarily be one, and that one representing itself in three different aspects, as creative thought, universal will, and divine wisdom, is commonly called God. It will therefore be best to say the universe is a manifestation of God. I am well aware that the use of such an expression always gives rise to innumerable misunderstandings in the minds of atheists, theists, and pantheists, because each of these classes has its own conception of God, forgetting that the finite mind cannot conceive of the infinite, and that the universal God is beyond the understanding of anything less than its own divine self. A man's life does not reside outside, but within his own body, and likewise God does not live outside of his own creation, but his power acts inside of nature. God is everything in nature, and also in that which is not produced by nature, and therefore supernatural and eternal, such as justice and truth. Nevertheless, nature is not God, everything is not divine, but everything is a state of being wherein, under certain conditions, the power of God can become manifest. Likewise, a stone or a tree is not nature, but in each stone and in every tree certain qualities of natural laws are revealed. If God is all and one, then there can be only one original power and one original substance. And power and substance themselves can only be two modes of manifestation of the Eternal One. There can be neither matter nor motion, per se. These two terms signify merely two aspects of that which is beyond our conception. If our minds were independent of the conceptions of time and space, we might perceive how it was that the One ever came to manifest itself as a three and to create a world. But as we are ourselves his creatures, we cannot encompass our creator. We cannot penetrate with our curiosity into the sanctuary of the mystery of mysteries. We can merely rise up in our thought to the throne of the eternal and seek to feel the power of God within our own heart. And then we will know more about him than if we study the whole library of the Vatican or learn by heart the Encyclopedia Theologica. 
Jakob Böhme, a man who was capable to open his eyes and to see the truth, and who was therefore not under the necessity of depending on mere belief in what he might have imagined to be true, in consequence of drawing logical inferences from external observations, says, The eternal foundation, the will of God, became desirous of conceiving of something, and as there was nothing but its own self, this universal consciousness conceived of its own self. It looked within itself, or, to express it in other words, God beholds himself in the mirror of his own eternal wisdom. Human language is not well adapted to the discussion of eternal truths which are beyond finite comprehension and which can never be understood unless we call to our aid that very light of whose existence we desire to obtain proof. Therefore, the external reasoner and doubter, he who relies solely on his own intellectual reasoning, will never arrive at eternal truth, because he rejects the light of the Spirit and extinguishes not the light, but his own capacity of understanding." If there is only one God in the universe, there can be only one power. This power is called the will, and it is fundamentally the same whether it manifests itself in the spiritual plane as divine love, wisdom, life, light, justice, and truth, on the astral plane as attraction, repulsion, emotion, passion, desire, in the physical plane as motion, light, heat, magnetism, electricity, cohesion, chemical affinity, or anything else. All these powers and forces and energies are, and can be, nothing else but manifestations of will, acting on the higher planes with and on the lower planes without self-consciousness. God never changes, and the will never changes. Nothing ever changes except the mode of the manifestation. All these assertions require no other proof but one's own observation. If you doubt them, look within yourself and ask yourself whether or not they are true. If there is only one God in the universe, there can be only one substance. This substance can fundamentally likewise be nothing else but the will, but for the sake of the distinction we may call it the mind because it is by means of the mental imagery that the will creates thoughts within itself. We might also call it imagination or ideation. But whatever words we may use, there is each and every one of them liable to be misunderstood, because words are merely symbols, and to the understanding of any symbol a key is necessary. This key is the understanding itself, which can be given by no man because it is a self-existent principle that is not of man's making, but will come to him by its own grace, if he makes himself ready for its reception. This one substance is fundamentally the same in all departments of nature. It constitutes the body of God, and therefore of the highest angels. It forms the vehicle of spirit and light and thought. It is everything, from the astral light that pervades the world down to the most grossly material objects. The highest mountains, no less than the most minute atoms, are corporified mind. Thoughts rendered solid and material by the inactivity of their inherent will. If the will of God were to begin to move within the foundations of the earth, the world which we now occupy would be dissolved in the twinkling of an eye. 
All is one, and the one is in eternal rest. Nevertheless, we find no absolute rest anywhere, but wherever we look we find a continual change of form and activity, a transformation of the images existing in the infinite mind. If the mode of activity of the will is changed within a form, the form changes its attributes. But form itself is nothing. It is merely an external appearance. There is consequently no change of anything except of the appearance and mode of manifestation of that which eternally is. Forms are shapes of the will, tinctured by the imagination. Or, we may also say, they are shapes of the mind, whose qualities are determined by the action of the will residing in them. They are all certain states of mind and will, and as such they are enduring or not according to the quality and intensity of the vibrations of the divine light that causes them to exist as an appearance on the screen of creation. They are all manifestations of their own inner spiritual light rendered objective and corporeal. If the will and thought constituting a form are divine, the form will be perfect. If the will is impure, or the thought inharmonious, there will be disharmony in the form which is their external expression. The perfection and duration of a form depends on the quality of the character expressed therein. A thought which is a perfect expression of the truth is everlasting and beautiful. It will require no circumstantial evidence to prove that it is true. Its truth will be self-evident to everyone who is capable to perceive it. Everyone who possesses truth himself is an authorized expert in knowing the truth, while the skeptic and liar cannot see the truth, however learned he may otherwise be. A thought, once formed, exists as an image in the mirror of eternity. To remember a thought, it is to look for it in the astral light and to behold it there, the astral light is the book of nature, where every thought becomes engraved and every event recorded. The stars on the sky exist and every one may see them. Likewise, ideas exist like stars on the inner sky of the universal mind, shedding their rays into the minds of men, and he who is able to open his eyes sufficiently can behold them there. No one can monopolize an idea, they are accessible to all who can grasp them, and they are sometimes grasped simultaneously by receptive minds. No one can create a body out of nothing, no one can create an idea. All that men can do is take what already is existing materials and put them into new shapes. A man who thus evolves a new and grand idea kindles a new star in the heavens whose light may be seen by everyone. Not only do the thoughts of men impress themselves into the astral light, but the universal mind takes cognizance of everything that exists, and every event that takes place on the physical plane is recorded in the memory of nature. Every stone, every plant, every animal, as well as every man, has a sphere in which is recorded every event of its existence. Each is like a light of which we can see only the grossly material wick, but neither the flame nor its luminous sphere of living light. In the astral light, 
of each is stored up every event of its past history and of the history of its surroundings, so that everything, no matter how insignificant it may be, can give an account of its daily life, from the beginning of its existence as a form up to the present, to him who is able to read. A piece of lava from Pompeii may give to the psychometer a true description of the volcanic eruption that devastated the town and buried it under its ashes where it remained hidden for nearly 2,000 years. A floating timber carried by the Gulf Stream to the far north may give to the inhabitants of the north a true picture of tropical life, and a piece of bone of a mastodon may teach the vegetable and animal life of antediluvian periods. The pictures impressed in the astral light react upon the mental spheres of individual minds and may create in them emotional disturbances, even if these pictures do not come to the full consciousness of their minds. Deeds committed with a great concentration of thought call living pictures in the astral light into existence that may cause impressible persons to commit similar acts. If the true nature of the constitution of man were properly understood, capital punishment would soon be abandoned as perfectly useless, unjust, and contrary to the law of nature. That which commits a murder or any other crime is a conscious and invisible power, which cannot be killed, and which does not improve in character by being separated from its external form. The body is innocent, it is merely an instrument in the hands of the invisible culprit, the inner man. The face of even a criminal bears an expression of peace when the soul has departed. By severing the bonds between this intellectual and vicious power and the physical form, we do not change its tendency to act evil. But while during the life of the body, the action of that power was restricted to only one form, having been liberated, it may now incite numerous other weak-minded people to perform the same crime for which the body was executed. Thus, by capital punishment, evil is not abolished, but its sphere of action is increased. As far as the theory of influencing other would-be criminals with fear by making an example of one, thus to prevent others from committing crimes, is concerned, it is well known that criminals do not look upon any punishment as being something which they deserved for their deeds, but as being a consequence of having been so careless as to allow themselves to be caught, and they usually make up their minds that if they were permitted to escape, they would be more careful not to be caught again. The destruction of a form is entirely useless for the purpose of annihilating the principle which it represents, because the form is not the character, nor can the destruction of the form in any way improve or ameliorate that character. He who steals away the life of any being, whether legally or illegally, merely destroys the conditions under which a spark of the divinity was striving to unfold its light and to obtain consciousness, and he thereby commits a crime against God, while the punishment of the culprit exists nowhere except in his imagination, because if he is not afraid to die, death will be no punishment to him. All that killing can possibly accomplish is to produce a change of external effects, creating thereby internal causes which are far more injurious, even if they are less evident. 
We are against killing for the sake of convenience, but on the other hand, we would not subscribe to that sentimental policy that never wards off a blow and submits to be killed. He who permits himself to be killed by another is committing murder through him. From a misunderstanding of the relations existing between a principle and the form in which it finds its expression result the most ludicrous effects not the least of which are the vagaries of those who attempt to improve the condition of the world by doctoring the external effects of internal causes, whereby invariably worse evils come into existence. If we wish to prevent the growth of an evil tree, it is of little use to lop off the leaves and the twigs, or even to hide the tree behind a screen. The living force in the roots and in the trunk will act with renewed strength, producing new branches and leaves, which the screen cannot cover from sight. All forms are nothing but symbols by which internal principles find their expression. To successfully change a form, it must be endowed with a new principle. We may melt iron a thousand times, we cannot transform it into gold. Nor could we transform a sinner into a saint if we were to baptize him with all the water that runs into the sea. But we only make a piece of iron magnetic by endowing it with magnetism, and a villain may become honest if the light of the true understanding enters his heart. Each being in nature represents a mental state in a certain condition of vibration. Each represents a melody in the great symphony of the music of the spheres. And as one sound of an instrument may cause a similar vibration in a corresponding instrument, likewise the principle expressed in one form may call a similar principle in another form into action. If mankind as a whole were so far awakened from their slumber as to be able to recognize the existence of eternal principles, instead of merely beholding the perishing form, then would the golden era begin, and the paradise be again established upon the earth. Then would they cease to run after illusions and shadows, or to put their faith into worthless objects. Then would they behold the Holy Spirit in everything, and the Redeemer within themselves. Then would the world be transformed by the magic power of love, and the darkness of ignorance be changed into the light of knowledge by the influence of the rays of divine wisdom. But what else can eternal principle be except a state of living will tinctured by divine thought? Even the highest spiritual beings and planetary spirits can be nothing else but self-conscious thoughts of God, vehicles for the divine will, and instruments for its manifestation all being obedient to divine law, order, and harmony, without which they could not be divine or eternal. God does not need the world to enable him to be what he is, but nature requires God to enable her to exist. The principle of life requires no form, but forms need the principle of life to enable it to live. Likewise, eternal love and justice and truth are self-existent, self-sufficient, and independent of any object or form. But they cannot manifest themselves without appropriate forms, and the forms that require them to enable them to love to be just and true. In other words, God is independent of his creation, but creation is dependent on him. Note C. Jakob Burma Aurora, page 23. Thus, 
The sun could exist without our earth, but the earth could not without the sun. A man can be without truth, but eternal truth nevertheless remains what it is, even if there were no one to recognize it. Thus we see that nothing will ever change or be transformed except by the influence of another principle. A natural product grows by the influence of natural principles, and that which is divine in man by the influence of the divine, while that which is devilish in man will grow by the aid of the devil. All things are made of will and thought, and therefore thought and will can act upon even corporeal substances. Anything a person touches receives a part of his own spirit. A lock of hair, a piece of clothing, the handwriting of a person or any article he may have touched, handled, or worn may indicate to an intuitive individual that person's state of health, his physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral attributes and qualifications. The picture of a murderer may be impressed on the retina of his victim and in some instances be reproduced by means of photography, but it is surely impressed on all the surroundings of the place where the deed occurred and can there be detected by the psychometer who may thus come en rapport with the criminal and even follow the events of his life after he has left that locality and hunt him down just as the bloodhound traces the steps of a fugitive slave. <laughs> Note, Emma Hardinger, Britain, Ghostland. The case cited in this book in which a clairvoyant followed the tracks of a murderer through several towns and caught him at last is quoted in several German publications of the last 17th century. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. This tendency of the astral light to inhere in material bodies gives amulets their power and invests keepsakes and relics with certain occult properties. A ring, a lock of hair, or a letter from a friend may not only conjure up that friend's tincture in a person's memory, but bring him en rapport with a peculiar mental state of which that person was or is a representation. Why do people put so much value upon the keepsakes received from a friend that they often dawdle away their time in playing with them? Is it that their memory is so weak as to require such a stimulus? Or is there something of that friend about them which the soul feels and perceives, but which cannot be recognized externally? If you wish to forget a person or free yourself from his magnetic attraction, part from everything that reminds you of him. Articles belonging to a person may bring us sympathy with that person, although the fact may not come to our consciousness, and this circumstance is sometimes used for purposes of black magic. 
The existence of a power by which a disease may be transferred upon a healthy person, even in non-contagious cases, by means of some article belonging to the sick person, is generally believed in by the people in Eastern countries. It must, however, be remembered that in making such experiments, the success depends on the amount of faith which the magician can employ. Without faith, nothing can be accomplished." but faith means will without any doubt, such as is attained by experience. As every form is the representation of a certain mental state, every substance has its sympathies and its antipathies. The lodestone attracts iron, and iron attracts the oxygen of the air. Hygroscopic bodies attract water, some substances change their color under certain colored rays, others remain unaffected. The ancients attributed certain virtues to certain precious stones and imagined that the garnet was conducive to joy, the chalcedony to courage, the topaz promoting chastity, the amethyst assisting reason, and the sapphire intuition. A spiritual force to be effective requires a sensitive object to act upon, but every spiritual or any other force can only come to the cognizance of him who is receptive for it. If a person cannot feel the occult influence of nature, it does not necessarily follow that they do not exist, and that there may not be others who may be able to perceive them because their impressional capacities are greater. Only the ignorant man believes that he knows everything. What is really known is only like a grain of sand on the shore of the ocean, in comparison to what is still unknown. Physiologists know that certain plants and chemicals have certain powers, and to a certain extent they explain their secondary effects. They know that digitalis increases the quickness of the pulse by paralyzing the heart, that belladonna dilates the pupil by paralyzing the muscular fibers of the iris, that opium in small doses produces sleep by causing anemia of the brain, while large doses produces coma by causing congestion. But why these substances have such effects, or why a chemical compound of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, and hydrogen may be exceedingly poisonous in one chemical combination, while the same substances if combined in a different stoichiometrical proportion may be used as food, neither chemistry nor physiology can tell us at present. If we, however, look upon all forms as symbols of mental states, it will not be more difficult to imagine why strychnine is poisonous than why hate can kill or fear paralyze the heart. If all things are made of the imagination and will, then surely drugs are the same, and by giving drugs to a patient we merely induce a corresponding activity in his will and act upon the imagination of his nature. The fact that the patient is not himself conscious of it does not change the matter. There are many processes going on in his system of which he has no knowledge. We therefore see that even the most rabid anti-mind curer and drug doctor acts after all himself upon the mind of the patient. The power to receive, transform, and evolve thoughts is the power of imagination. If an idea enters into the mind, the mind seeks to clothe it in a form, and this power may be exercised independently of any active application of the will. Imagination is, therefore, an active power, and it forms the basis of all artistic and magical operations. Art and magic are closely related to each other. Both give 
objective form to subjective ideas. The artist exercises this power when he mentally projects the picture formed in his mind upon the canvas and chains it there by the use of his pencil or brush. The sculptor shapes the picture of a form on his mind and embodies it in the marble. He then employs mechanical force to free the ideal from all irregularities and resurrects it from the tomb, out of which it may rise as a materialization of thought. The magician forms an image in his mind and makes it perceptible to others by projecting it into their mental spheres. By this law, many of the feats performed by Indian fakers may be explained. They may cause tigers and elephants or anything else appear before a multitude by merely forming the images of such things in the sphere of their mind, and as that sphere extends through space, they may locate these images wherever they choose. What the spectators see on such occasions is nothing else but the thoughts of the conjurer, rendered objective and visible by his will. In the case of an artist, mechanical labor executes the work, and the artist will finish his work the sooner the more he works to that end. In the case of a magician, concentration of thought executes his work, and he will succeed the better the more his thought is concentrated upon the work he desires to perform. But the greatest amount of labor will not enable a person who is not an artist to produce a real work of art, and the greatest concentration of thought will not enable a person whose will is not free to perform a true magical feat. As long as the world exists, no man has ever changed an opinion or an idea except by the influx of another idea, nor has any alchemist ever changed any inferior metal into gold except by the influence of that principle which constitutes gold, nor has evil ever been transformed into good except through the action of the superior power of good. The processes of nature are alchemical processes and not merely chemical ones, because without the principle of life acting upon the chemical substances of the earth, no growth would result. If the force of attraction and repulsion were entirely equal, everything would be at a standstill. If growth and decay would go hand in hand, nothing could grow, because a cell would begin to decay as soon as it would begin to form. The chemist may take earth and water and air and separate them into their constituent elements and recombine them again, and at the end of his work he will be with his work where he began. But the alchemy of nature takes water and earth and air and infuses into them the fire of life, forming them into trees and producing flowers and fruits. Nature could not give her life-imparting influence to her children if she did not possess it. The chemist who has no life principle at his command cannot perform the wonders of alchemy. Johannes Tritemius says, The spiritus mundi resembles a breath, appearing at first like a fog and afterwards condensing like water. This water, akasha, was in the beginning pervaded by the principle of life and light was awakened in it by the fiat of the eternal spirit. This spirit of light, called the soul of the world, the astral light, is a spiritual substance which can be made visible and tangible by art. It is a substance, but being invisible we call it spirit. This soul, or corpus, is hidden in the center of everything, and can be extracted by means of the spiritual fire in man, which is identical with the universal spiritual fire, the astral light. 
constituting the essence of nature and containing the images and figures of the universal mind. This light, astral light, resides in the water, akasha, and is hidden as a seed in all things. Everything that originated from the spirit of light is sustained by it, and therefore this spirit is omnipresent. The whole of nature would perish and disappear if it were removed from it. It is the principium of all things. There were true alchemists during the Middle Ages who knew how to extract that seed from the soul essence of the world. And there are some who have the power to perform that process today. Quote, it is an eternal truth that without our secret magical fire, nothing can be accomplished in our art. The ignorant will not believe in our art because they do not possess that fire. And without that fire, all their labor is useless. Without that fire, spirits cannot be bound, much less can they be acted upon with material fire. Johannes Trithemius, Miraculosa, Chapter 14. The most important alchemical work is the generation of man. It requires not only the chemical combination of physical substances, but involves a chemistry of the soul and an influence of the spirit, and all must harmoniously act together if a human being and not a human monster and mental homunculus is to be the result. If the rules of alchemy were better understood and adhered to, scrofula, cancers, syphilis, tuberculosis, and other inherited diseases would disappear, and a strong and healthy generation of men and women would be the result. The true alchemical laboratory is the body of man. The alembic is the soul. The magic fire the will, having become free. Ignorance is like lead. But by the addition of mercury representing knowledge, it becomes transformed into the pure gold of wisdom. Nothing will ever be accomplished without a mortification of the earthly residua, and it is for that purpose necessary to practice a continual sublimation of thought by sending the aspirations of the soul up to the highest good and to coagulate the wisdom received so that it may be incorporated into the soul and even the body become luminous in the light of the spirit. Note, to answer the question whether or not anyone ever succeeded in making gold grow in this manner, we will say that there is a German book in existence entitled Collection of Historical Accounts Regarding Some Remarkable Occurrences in the Life of Some Still-Living Adepts. It was printed in 1780, and among many most interesting anecdotes about successful attempts of making gold grow, there are copies of the legal documents and decisions of the court at Leipzig in regard to a case where, during the absence of the Count of Erbach in the year 1715, an adept visited the Countess in the castle of Tankerstein, and, out of gratitude for an important service which had been rendered to him by the countess, he transformed all the silver she had into gold. When the count returned, who, as it seems, kept his own property separate from that of his wife, he claimed that gold for himself, appealing to a certain statute of the law, according to which treasures discovered upon or below the surface of a certain piece of land belonged to the proprietor of that territory. But the court decided that as the material, the silver, out of which the gold had been made, belonged legally to the countess, consequently this gold could not be classified as a hidden treasure, and did not come within the reach of that statute. The count thereupon lost his case, and his wife was permitted to keep the gold. 
All this can be accomplished only in proportion as the will becomes free and ceases to be the slave of that compound of elementals and animals which constitutes the elusive ego of man. Not only should the will be free of all lower desires, but free likewise from the dominion of the imagination. The will is the sun, the imagination the moon. The moon must obey the sun, not the sun to the moon. Thought must become obedient to the will, and the will must be in harmony with wisdom, while wisdom is acquired in no other way but by obedience to the law. He who obeys the laws of nature and acts as her servant becomes the master of nature and renders her obedient to him. He who obeys the divine laws of God and is a true servant of God will be in possession of divine power, and God will fulfill his desires. The will becomes free through knowledge, not by means of what is usually called knowledge, and which consists in opinions formed by intellectual speculation and drawing inferences, but by means of the knowledge of the soul, such as is the result of the soul's own perception and experience. Only when the will has become free will it be able to act at a distance and to perform the wonders of magic and alchemy, which are regarded as miracles by the ignorant and denied by the foolish, because no man can be found who is able to perform them, they all being the slaves of worldly desires. The will of God is free and identical with the law. It is not influenced by any selfish desire nor by exhortations and prayers. It never deprives any creature, however low it may be in the scale of evolution of any of its rights, or gives them to another. It is deaf to persuasions, unaffected by bombast and bragging, and can neither be bribed with money nor be deluded with shows. If the actions of the universal mind were not subject to the eternal law of cause and effect, but guided by the arbitrary whims and notions of some invisible power or God contained therein, the most extraordinary results were liable to follow, and the age of actual miracles would begin. The earth would perhaps stand still for a day or a year and begin to revolve again the next. Sometimes it might turn fast and at other times slow, and there is no end to the absurdities which might take place, especially if this imaginary power could be induced to follow the advices of its worshippers. To the superficial observer, the processes of nature seem to be the results of chance. The sun shines and the rain falls upon the land of the pious as well as upon that of the wicked. Storms and fires rage, careless whether they destroy the life and property of the learned or that of the ignorant because they are the necessary results of the law of cause and effect. The interest of individuals cannot control the welfare of the whole, while the welfare of the human body seems to be, to a certain extent, under the control of the will of the individual. The processes of nature, as a whole, appear to be unguided by the reason of the universal mind. Man's reason can prevent an outburst of his emotions, but where is the personal God to control the emotions of the soul of the world? God does not prevent the growth of warts and cancers or tumors. God, being the law, cannot act in contradiction with himself. His blessings are accompanied by curses. Man's foot crushes the insect because man's perception and intelligence does not pervade his feet. 
God does not prevent the growth of a stone in the bladder because the high cannot manifest itself in the low. Wisdom cannot be active in an unconscious form. The means must be adapted to the end. The music that can be made with a harp cannot be made with a stick. The intelligence of the universal mind can only manifest itself through the instruments adapted for intellectual manifestation. Wisdom is not a product of the organization of man. It is eternal and universal. It finds its expression in the fundamental laws upon which the universe with all its forms is constructed. It is expressed in the shape of a leaf, in the body of an animal, in the organism of man. Its action can be found everywhere in nature, as long as the beings in nature live according to nature. There are no diseases in nature which have not been originally created by powers which acted contrary to the laws of nature and became therefore unnatural. Outward appearances seem to contradict this assertion, because we find even animals affected with diseases and epidemic diseases are even of frequent occurrence in the vegetable kingdom. But a deeper investigation into the occult laws of nature may show that all the forms of nature, minerals, vegetables, and animals are merely states or expressions of the states of the universal mind, in other words, products of the imagination of nature. And as the imagination of nature is acted on, influenced, and modified by the imagination of man, a morbid imagination of man is followed by a morbid state of the universal mind and morbid results follow again on the physical plane. This law explains why periods of great moral depravity, sensuality, superstition, and materialism may be followed by plagues, epidemics, famine, wars, etc., and it would be worth the while to collect statistics to show that such has invariably been the case. The elementary forces of nature are blind and obey the law that controls them. If hailstones were wise they would not indiscriminately destroy the crops. If the sun were a vehicle for intellectual labor, he might perhaps be persuaded sometimes to change the direction of his rays. Stones have no intelligence because they have no organization through which intelligence can act. But if an intelligent power sets them into motion, they obey the law by which their movement is guided. As the organisms rise in the scale of evolution and development, their consciousness becomes more manifest. Consciousness becomes manifest as instinct in the animal creation. It teaches the birds to fly, the fish to swim, the ants to build their houses, and swallows to make their nests. Acting through the nerve centers and the spinal cord, it induces the actions of the heart and lungs and other organic and involuntary actions of the body. The brain is the most highly developed instrument for the manifestation of mind. It performs the intellectual labor of the organism. Acting is a center of attraction for the collection of ideas, as a workshop for their transformation, and as a focus from which they are reflected again into the astral light. But with the power of performing intellectual labor, the highest manifestation of God in man is not yet obtained. If we wish to know the wisdom and majesty of God, we must prepare ourselves to become fit receptacles for his love. To accomplish this, we need not seek to acquire anything by our own power. All selfish efforts are useless for that purpose.
All we need is to throw away the obstacles in our possession that hinder us from seeing the light of the truth, and which consist of our own selfish thoughts and desires. If a man accomplishes this Herculean task, then will the door to the mystery be open before him. His mind will become illuminated with wisdom, and in his own soul he will behold the glory of his Creator. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk